Welcome to the podcast. I am Rick Thomas, and you're listening to Your Daily Drive. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. The title of it is The Danger of the Grace Mistake. Grace and gospel go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. You don't minimize either one of those, but there is a priority, there is a sequence, there is an order to them. The first, grace, is a means to the second, the gospel. You can't get to the gospel without grace because the gospel is given to you freely. You do not merit the gospel. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. It is God's kindness. So these are two things together, grace and gospel, but they are also two distinct doctrines, and they need to be thought of together and distinctly. Grace is the undeserved favor that permits you to enjoy the gospel. The danger with these two doctrines is what I call the grace mistake, and is what I want to interact with in this podcast. I don't know where you live where you're listening to this podcast, how you were reared, the kind of religion that you have been part of. But I am from the South. I have always lived in the South. And as as I say, as I tell people jokingly, I'm not sure how much of it is a joke, that we don't do evangelism in the South because everybody is saved. Everybody has asked Jesus into their heart. Everybody is born again. And so we don't do evangelistic work because everybody is a Christian. Now, that's hyperbole, of course. But what I have seen in my Christian experience is so many people who profess to be Christians, but the fruit in their lives just does not line up. Now, I, I have seen maybe more than you as far as fruit in individuals' lives because I have seen it in closed behind closed doors in counseling sessions where people lay out a lifestyle that's not even remotely close to how Jesus lived, uh, remotely close to Christ likeness, but they hold on to the fact that they have been saved and they focus on this idea of grace, but it seems like Again, it's external observation, but it seems like they have not been transformed by the gospel. And I do call this the grace mistake. Let me get into it, and I trust that this will make sense to you. I want to give you, speaking of hyperbole, I want to give you an illustration. My daughter had a birthday. We bought her a gift, an expensive gift. It is the most expensive gift we could have possibly given her. She carefully opened the gift. She looked at it and thanked us for the gift. Then she pushed the gift aside and spent the next two hours thanking us for the time and money we invested into the process of buying her the gift. On four other occasions during the day, she brought up how much it must have cost and how we had to set aside our time to find the perfect gift. After the little party we had for her, she began going door-to-door, telling the neighbors about all the lengths her parents went to to buy her the unmerited gift. She could not 
stop talking about how she did not deserve such a gift. The irony about all of this is that she hardly played with the gift. We were bewildered at how enamored she was over the process by which she received the gift, but not the gift itself. While I was appreciative of her gratitude to us for giving it to her freely, it was befuddling that she seemed like she didn't enjoy the actual gift as much as she liked talking about how much she did not deserve the gift. Now, let me give you a disclaimer. There is nothing true about this story, except my daughter did have a birthday. Here's my takeaway for you. The point of the story is to create a hyperbolic illustration, as I have, of how our enthusiasm over the means, the process, grace, in which we receive salvation, in which salvation comes to us, can, can unwittingly marginalize the gift, the gospel. The gift is the gospel, the means, the undeserved process that we receive the gospel. Well, that's grace. Now, I do realize that the conjoining of the two things, grace and gospel, are so close that it hardly matters how you talk about them. And I do understand that. But what I want to do is take these two ideas of grace and gospel, because they are two different things, and I want to stretch them apart like a rubber band so that you can see the difference in the two. Because on one level, it does matter. And I'm going to develop later why it does matter making the grace mistake. Grace is the undeserved means, instrumentation, the vehicle. It's the means to the gift. It's the vehicle that allows you or permits you to enjoy the gift. The gift, of course, is Christ. Christ is the gospel. He's the good news. He's the gift. You cannot have the gift. You will never get the gift without grace. There would be no point in grace if there was no gospel to give freely, and so the two are, are conjoined. You can't have one without the other, but they are two things. One is the unmerited favor that you receive. The other one is the transformative power, the gospel. The issue is how grace can supplant in some Christians' minds the beauty and the power of the gospel. There is no question that it is right to celebrate the means, the process, as my daughter was doing in my fictional story, the means that brought us to the gospel. But it can be dangerous if the means diminishes Christ, if the means to Christ diminishes Christ or diminishes the good news, the gospel. In 2 Kings 18.4, it says this, Hezekiah removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was, it was called Nehushtan. 
they were celebrating and fixated on the means that led them to salvation rather than the God of salvation. A grace fixation that diminishes the gospel reminds me of what happened to the Israelites who began worshiping the bronze serpent to the neglect of praising the God who brought healing through the serpent on the pole. When the thing, grace, that brings the gift, gospel, becomes the center of our affections rather than the gift itself, rather than the gospel, we can miss out, albeit unwittingly, the full enjoyment of the gift. Now, I realize I may be coming close to meandering off into church history semantics, and that's not my desire here at all. But it is something, especially if you do discipleship, you you want to dial in on the point of focus. Where is an individual's affection? And so this discussion is critical because there are too many among us who are making this grace mistake. Paul was very clear when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Christ is the transformative power of God. Grace is the vehicle. It is God's empowering, undeserved, unmeriting favor that it opens the door, so to speak, and it takes you to the Savior. Grace is the means or the instrumentation that allows the transformative power of the gospel to transform us. It is the gospel that changes us. It is grace, God's kindness or unmerited favor that allows gospel engagement. It allows us to get to Christ. We cannot come to Christ any other way. As we know, we cannot work our way To Christ, we cannot be obedient enough to get to Christ. We can only get to Jesus because of grace. God says, I will allow you to get to Christ. That is grace. It is unmerited favor. Now, I am thankful for my daughter's delight in my fictional story for the kindness that allowed her to enjoy the gift. Our kindness, the things that we did, to allow her to enjoy the gift. My greater desire is for her to engage the gift. A, pick up the gift, enjoy the gift. Yes, please continue to talk about all that your parents went through and the fact that you did not deserve it, but make sure that your priority, the accent mark is on the gift, the gospel, the Christ who transforms. The issue here is not an either-or equation, but a matter of biblical prioritization. I want her to appreciate that we gave it to her freely. Yes, please appreciate that, and I want her to enjoy it too. And so here's a couple of questions for you to think about. Where do you put the accent mark? On grace or the gospel? Both of them are important. Both of them are essential Christ is the thing, though, the main thing, as we like to say. What do you talk about the most? The grace from God or the gospel, who is 
Christ. It is clear from an eschatological worldview that the eternal accent mark is on the gospel, the person and work of Jesus. Read Revelation 5, 11 and 12. John said it this way, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5, 11 and 12. Are you more fixated on the grace that took you to the cross or the gospel that transforms your life? Whatever characterizes your life will determine the kind of life you have. And so this is the central question, the critical question that we have to answer. What is the thing that transforms or that characterizes, rather, our life? If you are grace-centered, you could live a lesser life than what the Bible offers you. If you are gospel-centered, you will have your best hope of living in the fullness that the Bible teaches. Typically, the most common way this theological infraction occurs is when a person comes out of a legalistic culture. And as I was saying earlier, because of where I live, maybe maybe it's like this where you live, but I do know that in the southern part of the United States, it is a highly, has historically been a highly legalistic culture. And so I've seen this so often, too many times. Because of an insufficient understanding of the gospel as it pertains to their sanctification, they create a common-sense false opposite in their minds. Here's the false opposite. For the legalist, the most common-sense thing for them to jump into is grace as they run from legalism. And so there's the juxtaposition. Legalism juxtaposed to grace. And they should jump into grace because that's the only way they're going to get to the gospel. If legalism is a conditional relationship with God based on a set of rules, which it is, it makes sense that they would want a relationship that is apart from conditions. But this could turn into a grace mistake. Grace could be the epicenter of their entire lives instead of the gospel as they interpret grace apart from the rules. The opposite of legalism is not grace, but the gospel. That's the opposite. Legalism is working your way to Christ, and the gospel is, is receiving Christ because of grace unmerited favor. Grace is the means, the instrumentation, or the vehicle that permits you to receive the gospel. You want to jump from legalism, being God of your own world, making yourself right with God, to to the gospel. That's what you want to jump into, a person who was right with God a person who will give you access to God. And grace is the means that will allow you to do that. Grace was never meant to be the replacement or the opposite of the gospel or the opposite of legalism. The real opposite in the Bible is when a person goes from legalism to the gospel. God's early response to Adam's legalism was 
a picture of the gospel as seen in how he responded to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4.4. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. It was grace that opened the door to this gospel opportunity. God did not have to show Adam a better way. It was grace to show him true redemption. It was his, it was his unmerited favor that Adam received that allowed him to see what true redemption looked like. Cain wanted to present the works of his hands, legalism, as the way to be right with God. God rejected his legalism while accepting a blood sacrifice, the gospel, as the only way to be right with him. Grace does not make you right with God, the gospel does. It is by grace, unmerited favor, that we can get to the gospel, but it is the gospel, Jesus Christ, that does the work of transformation. Let me reiterate, I am in no way making less of or minimizing grace. I am not. I am saying that grace cannot supplant the gospel. It cannot take our sights from the gospel. It cannot become the epicenter of our affections or the main thing in our Christianity. If anything gets in the way of our worship of the gospel, Christ we may be teetering on the precipice of false worship. Do you worship the serpent on the pole, which was a means to salvation, or do you worship the Lord who provides salvation? The people who are most tempted by the grace mistake are typically those who have been in conditional relationships. The two most potent legalistic shaping influences are the rearing of a child, and a rule-based religious system. There are other iterations of conditional relationships that will shape a person into a legalistic worldview, but the most common that I have encountered are familial and religious dynamics. Now, after you add our intrinsic legalistic Adamic natures, to familial upbringing and religious system-shaping influences, it's no wonder a person would struggle so much with legalism. While seeing something like grace as super enticing in a bad way, as I am contextualizing it here, and it could be enticing, or it should be enticing, as long as it's a means to the main thing. You take a child reared by an angry or an abusive or a distant or a passive dad, that child will nearly always conform to legalistic tendencies, conditional relationship. He will be shaped to be a legalist in addition to his Adamic shaping influences. All four of those parental personality types, angry, abusive, distant, passive, Communicate one thing, I like you under conditions. Let me give you some of the ways a child could interpret a conditional relationship with a father who does not imitate God the Father as we are called to do in Ephesians 5.1. Paul said, be imitators 
of God as beloved children. Here are four ways a child could interpret a conditional relationship. Angry, abusive, distant, passive. Number one, my angry dad would not choose anger toward me if I performed to his liking. My abusive dad would not hit me if I performed to his expectations. My distant daddy would pay attention to me if I were a better person. My passive father would engage me more if I were different. Notice all the ifs in those statements, those conditions, if I was different. All four of these family dynamics will train a child to perform for acceptance. And if he cannot garner the approval of the parent, the child will find their approval drive stroked outside of the family, which is typically where teenage love is given birth in the young person's heart. Religion is another fertile ground where legalistic longings find nourishment. Because most of us have only experienced conditional relationships, it is rare for a newly born Christian to think of God as being different from all their other relationships, which is why there is a temptation to please him through our efforts. Whether trained by Adam, we're all fallen, or trained by parents who parent conditionally, or if we're trained by religious systems, and unfortunately many of us have been trained poorly by all three of those contexts. Well, the chances are part of partaking in legalistic environments, it's likely. The chances of being frustrated and dissatisfied in those contexts are also high, which means the discontented religionist will be looking for something radically different from legalism. This context is where grace is set up by too many churches to be the bait that lures folks away from legalism. A process that is unfortunate because grace is the vehicle that takes the person to the gospel. Grace is a great start, but it is the gospel that transforms. Nevertheless, the burnt-out legalist goes gaga over the means to the end while never fully understanding the transformative gift, the gospel. This response is the most significant mistake of all. They become so excited about the rules not being relevant that they forget how the rules do matter, not for salvation, but for sanctification. There are a lot of principles, rules, ideas, commands, teachings, or whatever you want to call them in the New Testament that matter. None of those instructions have anything to do with meriting or losing your salvation because God grants salvation by grace. But obedience has a whole lot to do with your progressive sanctification. This tension creates a problem for the grace-centered, grace-loving, grace-talking folks because they find it extremely difficult to address the sinful things that are going wrong in their lives. If you take a person out of legalism and they've been ensconced in legalism for so long and you begin to address sin in their lives, they only have one category for that. You're being punitive. 
I am going to be punished. There's a black ball that's going to drop in the back room, and it's got my name on it, and, and I am not going to be helped or encouraged or walk through my problem. I'm going to be punished for my problem. What they do is they create an unnecessary tension. If you say anything about their sin, they only have one interpretive grid for your comments. This is what they'll say. This is what they'll say to you if you talk to them about areas where they need to improve. You're a legalist. Why are you talking to me about rules? I'm no longer a legalist. I live in grace. Yes, you do live in a culture of grace, I hope. But that culture does not relieve you from obedience. Typically, grace-centered people are hypersensitive and can even be mean-spirited if you talk to them about their sin. I have been yelled at, cursed at. I have received a whole lot of anger from a lot of grace-centered people when you talk to them about their lack of obedience. Some of them will go so far as to round the corners off their sinfulness by relabeling their actions to make them more palatable to their consciences. Due to the powerful shaping legalistic influences, they can become paranoid about anyone knowing the truth about their lives, and they don't let anyone get close to them. The grace-centered life, and I put that in quotation marks, can make you dull of hearing. Don't underestimate the residual power of legalism. The legalist loves the rules. The grace-centered person may spurn the rules. Both of them could miss the gospel. There's a gospel solution for this problem. The overarching pronouncement of the gospel I mean, there's many pronouncements of the gospel, but one of the overarching pronouncements of the gospel is that the only opinion in the universe that matters is God's opinion of you. And if God has saved you by his powerful gospel, you are his beloved child, and he is well pleased with you. He saves you by his gospel, which comes to you by his undeserved favor on your life. If legalism tempts you, please know that the gospel sets you free. It is the gospel that transforms. God gives you the transformative gospel freely by grace. The gospel removes your fears while showing you how there is nothing for you to protect, nothing for you to defend, nothing for you to hide. You are empowered by the gospel to live out your obedience, which is God's free gift to you. If the gospel has set you free, then you are free indeed. The title of this podcast is The Danger of the Grace Mistake. I am not minimalizing grace at all. Grace and gospel go hand to hand, and they're so close together that you don't separate them. You can't have one without the other, as I said in the beginning. But what I've done in this podcast is I wanted to stretch them apart like a rubber band 
and I wanted to look at them individually, even though they are conjoined together, so that you can see where do you put the accent mark? Do you put it on the gospel, or do you put it on grace? If you put it on grace, you could make the grace mistake, which could motivate you to not be obedient or to skirt around obedient issues, which is a reaction to legalism. People, uh, legalists who just come out of legalism are, in most cases, super reactionary. And if they're not trained in what the gospel truly means and how the gospel truly frees them, they may, they, they may have a hard time coming to the place of living an obedient life, which means owning the sin that is in their life. And again, I do understand, because the only context they have for talking about sin is, is a punitive context. Therefore, they hide their sin or round the corners off, as I suggested. If you need some help working through this, I would appeal to you to come to our website, rickthomas.net. Also, read the article on the website. But let us advise you. We would love to do this. What we do, our team would be more than willing to talk with you. It would be a pleasure to do that. So let us know if we can help. If you have a question about anything else, let us know that as well. Go to rickthomas.net, jump on our forums, and ask your question. If you want to flatten it out, go ahead and flatten it out. You can depersonalize it, but please, by all means, ask. We are here to serve you. It would be our joy. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.